The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John 14, 11 through 14. Jesus is speaking. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And this is God's revelation to us in the words of his Son, Jesus. Our own Lancaster TV news station has one reporter who does weekly, sometimes almost daily, reports in this day and age on the telephone and computer scams that you can get entangled in. And it's amazing that he repeats the same ones over and over, and yet people are apparently still falling for them as unwary consumers. If I would construct an imaginary example of the kind of thing he has warned about, it's a phone call like this. Hello, Mr. Rogers. It's great to talk to you today. I'm calling to say that you've just won second prize in the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. Congratulations. Isn't that great, Mr. Rogers? Now, our check for $500,000 is going to be on the way to you very soon. We just need to clear up one little detail and arrange for your money order payment of the $400 administrative fee so we can process your check. Let's get that done, all right, Mr. Rogers? big buzzer went off midway in that conversation. First of all, I didn't enter the sweepstakes. Secondly, you don't have to pay to get a prize. And that, of course, is the big hook in that one. And thirdly, if anything sounds too good to be true, you can pretty much assume it is. But what should we do in applying that kind of skepticism about sounds-too-good-to-be-true things spoken to us by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it possible the Son of God would give us a wonderful promise, something that sounds fantastic and wonderful, and it really isn't true? Or it has a fine print hidden clause of some kind that after the fact we could, we could be told, well, you didn't satisfy the, the right clause, so you can't claim the prize. This applies very well to John 14, verses 12 to 14, where Jesus made not one, but two promises that seem to be, humanly speaking, unrealistic, if not totally incredible. First of all, he said that disciples of his, and we would assume he meant not just 
the men listening to him who became New Testament apostles, but we ourselves as disciples of his, will participate in works for God's kingdom that will be greater than what Jesus accomplished on earth in his short ministry life. Incredible. And then a second thing here that he stated, if we ask anything in prayer, in my name, in the name of Christ, we will receive it. Incredible. We have to admit innate skepticism towards these claims. They sound like the kinds of things that human beings are always selling, some kind of scheme or hype or something that we're supposed to get on board with that really has a false basis or a trick to it, and it's not going to come true. Well, I would like to hope I can dampen skepticism that you might bear towards these promises of Jesus to find out that they are indeed true, and that while he himself long ago departed from physical presence on this earth, he is promising us here that he is not stopping his work on the earth. He's doing his work continually, as he says here, because I've gone to the Father. I'm doing my work in a new mode now because I'm going to the Father. And in this new mode of powerfully working by the Holy Spirit in our lives, he can affect our lives, he can affect events, he can affect the church and its progress, he can bring marvelous answers to prayer when we discover how to pray, not just for our selfish little wants and needs, but for the very things that he desires that we would pray for. I'm going to state both of our two main points today as questions. First of all, this, how can we participate in, quote, greater works than the miracles of Jesus? Now, we know Jesus was talking about his miracles when he said works here. That's why I brought in verse 11, because he had been saying that he had done these works and the Father did the works through him and, and people could even believe on him. If, not, if they didn't trust his word, they could trust the works that he did in verse 11. Miracles are what he meant. The fantastic things they had seen. Him walking upon the Sea of Galilee, multiplying a boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people. That we would do works that would be greater than this somehow to us just doesn't add up. We ask ourselves, how can we do anything more spectacular than raising Lazarus, who had been dead four days, and seeing him walk out of a tomb? What is Jesus saying here? He uniquely had the power of God at his disposal, the, the very creator God, to affect the works of nature. How can we do anything greater than that? Well, actually, it's not nearly as hard to understand as it might seem at first. We need to understand what he means by greater than these, and I would suggest to you one place where you can zero right in on it and and focus on the answer is to go to another gospel, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. This is a place earlier in the ministry where Jesus had sent out a larger group, these disciples, the 11 were included, but there were 60 others, 61 others, to make 72 who were sent out in pairs to do ministry, to go to various villages spread all over and kind of act like John the Baptist and make known that the kingdom of God was near and that people should repent 
and that the name of Jesus was the name in which, in which they could put their faith. They did this. They had their witness trip, their short-term mission, if you want to call it. They came back and they reported to Jesus. And they were full of excitement because of the things they had seen. They said, Lord, reading Luke 10, 17 and following, Lord, even demons submitted to us in your name. Imagine that. I did a demon exorcism. They were thrilled with this. They saw miraculous power. Jesus cautioned them, and here's the key issue to, to notice. He said, don't rejoice just because spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, that's a key that unlocks our text before us in John 14, because what is Jesus saying here? Is it a great thing to see supernatural power chasing demons away and and perhaps they, I'm sure that they also did healings and so on. We have that implied there in, in Luke 10. Things that required God's miraculous intervention had happened. But Jesus said, you know what the greater thing is? Your souls are saved by faith in God's redemption that is coming true through me. In other words, miracles are splendid signs. God gave them for a reason. He wanted to prove things. He put them up like billboards along the highway and said, look, this is important. You can believe in my son because he does these miracles. That's what he just said in verse 11 here. But what's the greater thing? You know, how long does a miracle, let's ask it this way, how long does a miracle last? You fed 5,000 people. Did they want breakfast the next morning? You better believe it. You raised Lazarus from the grave. Did Lazarus die again? You better believe it. You healed a paralyzed man, a, a leper, a blind man. Did they die? Every single one of the people Jesus healed died. Now, that does not tell us that his miracles were nothing or they were unimportant, but they were, un, they were important for an hour, for a time, for a purpose, but it was not an eternal purpose. Jesus is saying, you want to know what's really important? That your names are written in the book of life. That your souls will live in eternity because of the blood that I will shed for you and the righteousness I will provide on your behalf. Every human soul redeemed by Christ doesn't die, not in the spiritual sense. They live. And they don't live a year or an hour or 10 years or 20 years. They live forever. Is that greater than feeding the 5,000? You better believe it is. And so the work that Jesus is talking about on earth that is greater than the, those miraculous works that he did is the salvation of souls. And he's saying, look, that's your work. I will be working in you and through you from heaven with my Father to accomplish this work. We try to estimate how many people could actually have been called Christian disciples at the time Jesus died on the cross and rose again. It's, it's not easy to come up with, but we do know that it says he appeared a lot to uh, 500 people alive. They witnessed the resurrection. So at least 500 had that wonderful proof presented to them. Well, let's double that. Let's say there were a thousand real Christians, real disciples on earth when Jesus was raised and, and then was ascended to heaven. I, the exact number doesn't matter. But what happened on the day of Pentecost when good old Peter, get it wrong Peter, 
Peter, who always had his foot halfway down his throat, preached his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost and was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel of Christ crucified right there in Jerusalem was preached to the people in Jerusalem. Do you recall the math? How many that very day trusted Christ? 3,000, thank you. 3,000 people never responded to one sermon of Jesus that I ever heard about. And a century after that, at the time of Christ, here was the mighty Roman Empire ruling a vast swath of the, of the civilized world at the time of Christ. One century later, Rome's bastions were crumbling everywhere, and Christianity was spreading and flooding its way like a wild. You see these wildfires out west that they can't even guess where they're going next? That was Christianity in the second and third century up to Great Britain, into France, up to Germany, over to India, out to China. The gospel was going. And growing churches were springing up and thousands and tens of thousands were naming the name of Christ. Greater works indeed than even happened in the time of Jesus himself. If you can, sometime you ought to try to read about the wonderful work of Christ in the land of Korea. I think we have a few Korean folks among us. I don't know how much they know about their own spiritual history. I'm sure some. There's a little book called The Korean Pentecost. I believe it's in our library, so you can all rush and try to grab the one copy that's there. But it's easily available, a Christian book, The Korean Pentecost. It tells you that in Korea at about 1900, the beginning of the 20th century, there were almost no Christians, almost none. And in came Christian witness from Britain and America, And it was seed planted in fertile, well-plowed soil, ready to grow. Against real persecution, severe persecution, the Korean church grew. And by the way, we're talking about north and south. This is before the division. In fact, it grew greater in the north, if anything, in the early days than in the south. And then we come along in the 1960s or 70s, not even a century later, and go examine churches of soul of different kinds, Pentecostal, many Presbyterians, Methodists, churches with 100,000 to 200,000. I believe today there's one with 400,000 members. Some of the largest churches in the world are in Korea. Now, not 100% of all Koreans are believers, but It is a widespread thing in that country today. It's one of the strongest Christian countries. I believe Korea counts itself as as number two to the United States in number of total missionaries sent out. You've got Korean missionaries in South America. That always sounds a little strange to me, you know. A Korean in Brazil starting a church. But God is doing it. Amazing. You've got a similar thing in China today. Few really seem to understand the story of of Christianity in China, but it's growing, it's burgeoning, it's officially opposed. They they have a state church that the state recognizes, which is a sort of like a tame pony that behaves itself and does what the state says, which is just about nothing that means anything. But then you've got the house churches booming, blossoming, spreading all over the place, little unofficial seminaries. It is estimated, I don't know if we can verify this, but it's at least close to true, if not true, 
this will probably surprise you folks. You think of what's the great Christianized country of the world, the United States? Right now it is my understanding that China has surpassed us numerically in the number of real born-again Christians in their country, more in China than in the United States, and it's growing much, much faster than in the U.S. God is doing amazing works in our generation. When we talk about missions in this church and have our missions time gathering folks in here in February, this is not some tame, ho-hum subject. This is God at work through weak people who go out in the strength of the Lord and and give witness, and God is growing His church. And you may think Christianity is on the downturn in our country. It certainly is in Europe. Many of the same signs showing up in America. Our government's certainly against us in many ways. But God is working in South America, in parts of Asia, in much of Africa. His church is alive. He's doing great things. Folks, friends here of our refugee community could tell us of Christianity in their countries that they came from. God is doing great things, just as Jesus said would happen. Greater works than even were seen in the time of Christ. So that promise is certainly true. Well, secondly, we look at this other promise, and you might say, all right, maybe you convinced me on that one, but but this other one is, is really tough, Pastor. How are you going to explain this? Jesus saying, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you, he said it twice here in this short passage, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that God might be glorified in the Son. Well, my question here, my leading point here is to ask, how may we participate in prayer that taps into God's unlimited power? I think you know, if you've been around evangelical Christians at all, that most of us, when we pray, remember, it's not an absolute rule that you must say these words, but usually when we pray, we end by saying, in Jesus' name, amen, or in the name of Christ our Lord, amen, or something like that. It's the proper sign-off code for prayer, right? And if, if somebody prayed all the time and said, thank you, God, for this and this and this, amen, you might get concerned and say, wait a minute, doesn't he know Jesus is the mediator and we're supposed to pray in his name? Well, it's more than a sign-off code. It's more than proper language to put at the end of prayer. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name is the key question. Far too many Christians have a simplistic, naive, almost childish idea of prayer. Really, if you boil it down for most people, the idea is, all right, I need certain things. I want certain things. Certain things are appealing to me. I wish God would change this circumstance. Get me a better job or get me a job in the first place or or work in this relationship. I need this. So I compile my laundry list. I go to God with my list, and I say, okay, God, here's the list. Now deliver. And by the way, Amazon has next day delivery, so I would think you could be that fast, God. Why do you need more time than Amazon? Deliver, please. And God doesn't deliver, so we say, oh, prayer doesn't work, based on a childish, foolish idea of prayer. I think one way of paraphrasing the message and the key to this second too-good-to-be-true promise of Jesus is to say it this way. Now listen to this. I believe this condenses the whole lesson. In order to get what you want from God, 
learn to want what God wants. In order to get what you want from God, learn to want what God wants. Because that's what prayer in Jesus' name is. When you ask something in the name of somebody, you're asking based on that person's character, that person's being, that person's authority. You're coming to God saying, God, in the name of Jesus, your son, on the basis of his authority and of his finished work for me on the cross and his mediation at your right hand today, I come to you and I ask this, believing your son would ask this. You see, that's what it is. It's asking what Jesus would ask. I ask you this, God. Now, can you take your laundry list and tack it on to that? Are your needs often trivial, often foolishly stated, or, or maybe wrongly desired, really worthy of being asked as the things that Jesus would ask? Isn't it true that what prayer is really about is refining our requests, learning by praying how to pray? In other words, I come to God and I say, well, God, I think I need a new car. That's probably a silly example, but help me get a new car. And then the next day I'm still praying and I'm saying, well, God, maybe it's pretty presumptuous of me to ask for a new car. I'd be glad for a good used one. And then you pray a little more and you say, well, God, maybe that's not a good use of my resources right now. Show me how to adjust my income and spend wisely and budget things. Maybe I don't really need a new car. You see, in the act of praying, you're learning what you should really be praying for. And gradually, hopefully, your selfishness and your pride and your self-centeredness is being refined so that your petitions change. And more and more, hopefully, as you think about Christ and the mind of Christ and the example of Christ, its impression on you shapes it more and more that you're praying the way Jesus might pray. I read a true story. I've actually read this used by a number of preachers. It's one of those preacher stories that gets passed around, but it's true, I believe, from the experience of an evangelist named R.A. Torrey, a man of previous generation, early 20th century. R.A. Torrey was pretty well known. And uh, one time he was preaching about prayer, and a man approached him after the message and said something like this, Mr. Torrey, I want you to know I have prayed for something for years now that I firmly believe God would want for me and my family, but I haven't got it. And it's important that I tell you that I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, faithful and true. And in fact, I've been the Sunday school superintendent for 25 years and an elder for 20 years. But I've been praying about this thing that is a good thing, and I can't understand why God does not answer my prayer. Can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? And R.A. Torrey treated the man gently, but said, Sir, from what you have presented, it sounds to me that you're praying in your own name, not in the name of Jesus. You want God to answer based on your being a 30-year Presbyterian and a 25-year superintendent and a 20-year elder, and you're pretty sure that the thing you're praying for is what God wants. Are you really so sure that if Jesus were praying for you, he would be asking that thing? Will you seek exclusively after the things that are the will of Christ, your Savior, and not necessarily your own will? 
Doesn't that apply to most of us? We really, you know, we wouldn't say it outright to somebody. I think I've been doing pretty good stuff for God. I do show up at Westminster, you know, 85% of the time. And that ought to earn me some kind of a hearing. And this thing I'm asking for really isn't a bad thing. Doesn't God definitely want that too? Praying in Jesus' name is, is a kind of lifetime project, a passionate quest to see my mind and will be reordered, reshaped, revised, to more and more be in conscious oneness with the mind of Jesus Christ. Well, how do I know the mind of Jesus Christ? Well, guess what? You've got a textbook. Here it is. And as you dwell in the textbook, And the words revealed from God and the principles of God and the laws of God and the promises of God and the parables of Jesus and the promises of the New Testament all kind of drench your consciousness. They're washing out all of that stubbornness and greed and pride and wrong ideas. You're being drenched and washed in the mind of God and the mind of Christ. And what the Bible does is teach you eventually to think God's thoughts. And as you practice prayer more and more, you realize that the things you come to and lay before God initially are quite often misguided. And what you've got to do is pray about your prayers. Now, that's not double talk. That's saying, realize that what you started out asking isn't really what God intends to do. What he intends to do is start changing your mind so that you would start asking for the right things, just as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth. Do we pray, do any of you secretly whisper in the Lord's Prayer when we say it every week, my will be done on earth as in heaven? If you don't, why do you pray that way? Do you really pray, your will, O God, be done? God hasn't given us here in this promise of Jesus some blank check to say, all right, come, and as long as at the end of your prayer you say, in Jesus' name, amen, it'll be done. And then you've got a blank check to fill in whatever you want. No. Asking in Jesus' name means asking what Jesus would ask. And even those of us that may count ourselves as mature Christians have to admit that sometimes we're far from that. And sometimes it's a process to get to where we would begin to think, oh, wait a minute, my petitions are wrong. My desires are wrong. I'm not close to asking for what Jesus would ask. And you say, well, it sounds like a, it sounds like a hard process, and I'll never do it, but isn't the goal a worthy one? Because think of it. What we're saying here is Jesus is the real petitioner. And what Jesus asks of his Father cannot possibly be denied. So if we can get our thoughts and plans and desires close to, in fact, in line with those of Jesus, we can't be denied. When you ask in my name, truly ask that way, congruent with me, the Father will not deny you. Well, this passage, as I wrap up, is is a wonderful thing because it's showing, you see, the previous passage had Jesus saying, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now he's saying, just as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, I am in you. By my Spirit, I'm working in you, even teaching you how to pray. 
Galatians 2.20 has Paul say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Maybe I could just change Paul's verbs there legitimately and say, it is no longer I who pray, but Christ who prays in me. That's the goal, at least. Acts chapter 1 has Luke, the author, referring back to his previous gospel, the gospel of Luke, and saying, before this, he writes to his friend Theophilus, a lover of God, and says, Theophilus, I told you all the things that Jesus began to do on earth. And then Luke proceeds into his second book, the book of Acts, to tell us all the things that Jesus, the ascended Lord, the glorified, resurrected Lord, continued to do, not on earth, but through, well, actually on earth, but he wasn't on earth. He did it through his yielded, believing, trusting people, common, ordinary people who prayed and obeyed and saw marvelous things of eternal value taking place. When our weakness is offered up in this way to God, the power of Christ and the power of the Spirit touch other souls through us. Imagine it. Permanent things happening for eternity because we obeyed. We witnessed. We prayed for somebody. We sponsored a a missionary outreach that planted a church in a place where the gospel had never been. Greater works than the miracles of Jesus. The promises are true. They're absolutely true. Glory be to the Father whose work is still going on on this earth today. Father, I ask you to help us have a greater vision, a greater understanding of how you're working even today. Thank you. What a wonderful promise Jesus has given us. Help us even as we pray. Help and shape our prayers that more and more our minds might be one with the mind of Christ. We thank you for this encouraging word. In Jesus' name, amen.